slave. One little word. One huge omission. It depends on where you stand. For centuries, this little passage in Luke has been interpreted and preached about from the perspective of faith, the little mustard seed. This text is about increasing faith. The lesson is we have to use the faith we already have. The disciples have it wrong as usual. They're asking for more faith, for Jesus to increase their faith. Dear Jesus, if we only had more, 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 we could do what you do. We could heal. We could face Herod, Caesar, even the titles of most of the articles and commentaries going back centuries are things like this. Doing faith until you have it. Everyday faith. Use it or lose it. That's hip. That's a 60s title. You can just tell, right? We could go back further. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon in 1855 wrote a sermon called The Necessity of Increased Faith. He wrote, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They went to the right person. They did not say to themselves, I will increase my faith. They did not cry to the minister, preach a comforting sermon and increase my faith. They did not say, I will read such and such a book. No, they said to the Lord, increase our faith. Go to your master and say, increase our faith. And on and on and on. Now, this is all good. Generations of would-be Christians taught to focus on faith, how to increase faith or to trust that we already have enough faith. We sang this morning, we've come this far by faith. We just have to use what we have or believe that even a tiny bit of faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. I've preached my fair share of sermons over the years on this text in that vein. But I read this so familiar, this friendly text this time, and my stomach crawled. I feel nausea. I want to throw up on the page because of that one little word, slave, and the way we slide over Decades, centuries, now, now, the way it rolls so easily off the tongue of the speaker and lands with no discernible impact on the listener. Did you give it any second thought at all, really? Because the passage is about increasing faith, such a worthy thing to do. Now, I had a little trouble with the title. I hope it was jarring to you, produced a little anxiety, maybe, thanking your slave. Here's the conventional take. The idea 
is nonsensical, isn't it? Illogical. It's in the text. Why bother thanking your slave? Luke writes it. Jesus says it. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? We are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Do you hear the exclamation point in the text? But times change and context evolve. And we must take care to hear these sacred texts in these times. I can't glide by the slave in the narrative. We are worthless slaves without acknowledging that slavery isn't being rejected here. It's being normalized. It is ordinary, acceptable. You wouldn't invite your slave to dinner with you in the big house after picking cotton, would you? You wouldn't invite the homeless person you served at the shelter home for pizza and beer and popcorn and football in your family room. The Super Bowl is coming. Would you? You might send money to help defend immigrant families separated from one another and detained in subhuman conditions, but you wouldn't visit them or try to take them home with you, would you? It's worse than illogical. The underlying assumption is oppressive and repulsive, indicative of our continuing failure, slave, to deal with race in our church, in our culture, in our society, in our world, I want to preach faith. I must. We must have faith. We must increase faith, use faith, share faith, and, and we can't ignore or normalize injustice while shimmering with faith. The glow will fade in dim light cast by a pastel faith. So my wife Nancy and I were in Sonoma, California, the wine country, some time ago for a wonderful wedding in the family of dear lifelong friends. And we spent a night after the wedding in the home of some former next door neighbors from Princeton, New Jersey now living in Larkspur, California. They have a redwood tree in their backyard. A redwood tree. One of those magnificent, rich in hue, tall and straight wonders of the natural world. Forest of redwoods is more than equivalent to the skyline of this great city. A sight to behold, a redwood tree in the backyard. You can lean against it while standing on the back porch. 
it begins to split about 50 feet up and becomes twins for most of its enormous towering height. It dwarfs the house and the garage. It cannot be ignored even if you wanted to. You could take it for granted. Just think of it as a natural part of the landscape, a lovely perk in the purchase. I can hear the listing. Beautiful three-bedroom, two-bath home on a creek. A lovely garden nestled in the mountains of Larkspur, Redwood, in the backyard. But here's the thing. In a hundred years, maybe less, that tree is going to uproot that house. You hear me? It isn't just there, benign. It has roots in the history of the land. There is no inclination to overlook it. It's magnificent still. It's just a feature of the landscape. Slavery is in our backyard, rooted in our history, uprooting and threatening our future. Genocide is in our history, the horrific abuse of Chinese immigrants in the building of the West and the connecting of this nation from East to West is in our backyard. The shameful ongoing treatment of neighbors from the South along the border is in our backyard. Our shame is the litany of injustices that we take for granted. Like the redwood in the backyard that's beautiful today. The litany of injustices that hide within the word slave in the text that will yet uproot our present and threaten our future. We sanitize slavery. We normalize slavery. And so we get black men and women and children shot down in the streets and we do nothing. We get the tragedies of Half Moon Bay and Monterey, Pulse Night in Orlando. We get Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and now Tyree Nichols killed by African-American police officers, their dark skin reflecting their blue hearts. All of it derived from the pages of our history, torn from the book of our truth, the fugitive slave laws that gave birth to policing are staring us in the face as those scorpions drag Tyree out of his car. He was just trying to get home. Aren't we all? This is the first Sunday in Black History Month. 
And it's so clear that the lessons of black history, which is the history of the United States, have been ignored. Trump's America has paid no attention, couldn't care less. And these days, led by people like Ron Trump-like DeSantis, who wants to be our next president, the effort is to ban the telling of our history altogether. He led the fight to make, listen to me now, I know you know this, he led the fight to make Black Lives Matter optional in advanced placement curriculum for African-American studies. I can't count the ways that is so wrong and so exactly where we are at this moment in our history. What's in the backyard of the world uprooting our collective history? Normalized slavery, white, especially male privilege, colonialism, a savage capitalism, endless war, and so we have slave wages and poverty and mass incarceration and a rigid caste system and the abuse of our mother earth. You let me leave the page for a minute? I know you will. <laughs> Jackie's never on the page. <laughs> I'm going to leave the page here and just end with this. I helped my son move to Atlanta a week ago. I got the bruised ribs to prove it. And I learned then, and I beg you to read in the opinion section of the New York Times today, an article by Richard Powers, who wrote that wonderful book. Uh, oh, I forget the name of it now. Overworld, Underworld, about the trees. Say the name. Overstory. Thank you. The article is about the South River Forest in Atlanta, it's bordering Atlanta. It borders an underprivileged African-American community. Do you know about this? City Council voted to create a $90 million, 85-acre 
Atlanta Center for Training Police and Fire. Fire. What do you call them now? Fire people. Firefighters. Thank you. <laughs> See, if you don't write it down, you don't have Jackie's memory. So there's a lot more to this, right? This land 200 years ago was stolen from the Muscogee native population. And this land used to house the old prison farm. Countless abuses of the black and brown and poor white prisoners there. And this forest is a preserve that protects Atlanta, that helps cool it in the hot summer and helps to purify the air. And two weeks ago, those who gathered from all over the country, not just the Atlanta era, environmentalists, Latinx, folks, African-Americans, young whites, those who gathered to protect this sacred forest were overrun and violence erupted and a police officer was wounded and a Latinx man, 26 years old, was killed. When you normalize slavery, genocide, when you normalize these injustices, you get this today. All of it comes together here, the environmental movement, the sanctity of black and brown lives, the future of our planet. All of it is implicated in a story like this, which can be repeated, I do not doubt, all around our country. These sacred texts, we have to unpack them. We have to interrogate them for the deeper truths that are there for us. So that, yes, we've come this far by faith, but not far enough, so much further for us to go. And we can only do it in communities like this one with faces that cover the whole spectrum of color and age and faith. It's wonderful that we're in a Jewish synagogue as you worship in this period before your fierce love resurrects Middle Collegiate Church, the building. Middle Collegiate Church, the people, is still alive and giving life to the city and the world. Let's work together, Middle. Not to normalize what is oppressive and unjust, but to build together a world that will be hospitable for all God's children 
today and tomorrow.